If you turn uh, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Really going to be talking about apologetics for the next uh, couple of weeks, but I didn't really want to uh, use that word. Um, I've got giving a reason for the hope that nourishes us. Now, he says here, give a reason for the hope that is in us, but it's a hope that nourishes us, right? It's a hope that sustains us, hope that gives us strength and, and diligence and endurance, uh, hope that nourishes us. Um, and tonight we're going to talk about the role our lives play in this, in, in apologetics. And then the next week, possibly two more weeks, we'll talk about an actual verbal defense or engaging with people about uh, Christ and, and the Word. <clears throat> so, beginning verse 8, we'll read through verse 17. Really important to see, I want you to see in this context that though in verse 15 there's this one line about uh, making a defense, okay? Look how much surrounds it concerning how we live. Just that one line of make a defense and everything around it is living kind of life that will uh, represent Christ and the kind of life that will speak uh, a different kind of apologetic, you know. Uh, it's its own defense, how, how we live. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Then he uh, quotes from the Old Testament. For whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, the word uh, he uses here is, and this is where we get this word apologetics. It's, it's a little bit confusing, but the, uh, the Greek word is apologetics. Gia, okay. Oh, there's nice lines in here. Thank you so much, Arrington, for that. That's really uh, apologia. And then uh, there's a, that's the noun, and then there's a, a verb, apologomai. I have to concentrate to write that in English. 
So this is the, the verb and the noun. But that's why it's just been moved over into uh, English as apologetics. But it doesn't mean, uh, of course, uh, the study of how to apologize, right? Uh, it's, it means, uh, as translated here, it's the word defense here. And I'd like for you to back up with me to uh, Acts, and we'll look at some passages where it's used of Paul, because Paul had to do this a lot. So Acts 22.1, then there's uh, 20, 24.10, 8 and 16, and then uh, 26 has actually three verses, 1, 2, and 24 in it. So that's just if you want to range through those on your own sometime. Um, but so Acts uh, 22, verse 1, easy to, I don't usually like to thumb through, but since these are all compact right here, uh, so here he is uh, standing before uh, the people who uh, are wanting to attack Paul and he's going up the steps into the barracks and uh, the, the guard, the, the, the uh, soldier allows him to speak. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And then he goes on, verse three, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus. All these things happen, and he's saying in verse 6, on my way I drew near to Damascus. He's saying, look, I was a persecutor, and this is what happened to me. All right? So he's giving a defense for why he as a Jew used to be a, a Pharisee, a zealot, uh, who was willing to put people in jail and have them killed for following Christ, is now following Christ. Right? So he's giving a reason, a defense for why you find me in this situation. Chapter 24, uh, verse 10. When the governor had nodded to Paul to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And then he says some similar things to him. Uh, in 25, uh, verse 8, you'll see Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense when he's being accused of these things. So he's defending his, his, his lifestyle. I've never done any of these things as my accusers have said. And then drop to verse 16. I answered them that it was not the custom uh, of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense. So you get a feel there for how these words are used. And then just the first couple of verses in chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that I'm going to make my defense today. So that's what Peter is talking about. And the assumption uh, for Peter is that Someone comes to you, likely because of your lifestyle, your testimony, something that was said or done, uh, watching you uh, take some stand, watching your uh, refusal to engage in certain things, or possibly drawn just by a kind person. You know, you're 
a lovely person or you, you helped this person. Nobody else would have helped that person, but you did. So there's in some way here a question of what makes you tick? Now, it could be positive in that way. It could be something that they see in you and you're, they're kind of drawn to it and they're curious. It could be they catch wind that you follow Christ and they are against you immediately and they think you're a troublemaker or they think you must be half crazy. Uh, they don't want you on their team because you're a Christian or you know all those kinds of things. Or it could be a little mixture of both where they're attracted to your lifestyle but then they find out you're a Christian and their experience with Christians has not been really good. But then you're doing, you're exhibiting, you know, excellent behavior and they don't know what to make of you. But it is interesting that they are asking, uh, particularly as we'll get to, for the hope that is in you, to give a defense for the hope that is in you, which tends to indicate something positive about the way you live or have handled difficulty or even persecution. It was said often that the church grew through the blood of the martyrs because the people who actually put them to death again and again could not believe how they died. So it was the testimony itself of their hope, their endurance, their integrity, even in the midst of death, that caused many people to be changed in those early days. Uh, so, uh, to use of the word apology, it's even said the apology of Socrates, as uh, Richard Pratt writes, is an account of the defense which he offered before the court in Athens. And Justin Martyr wrote a, a treatise called His Apology, which was defending Christians, uh, one of the things martyrs would say is you are looking for the Christians who won't pour out their libation before your God. Everybody else does, even if they don't believe in the emperor's gods. They don't care. They just want to save their neck. So the people with the most integrity who won't do it, those are the ones you're you know, searching out to kill. And that's just some of the line of his argument and his uh, apologetic. But see, he's, he's trying to defend the Christians so that they won't be put to death. You shouldn't be putting these people to death. These are your finest citizens. You're citizens with the most integrity. And you're searching them out and finding them and putting them to death. That kind of idea. So uh, you can see different aspects of what apologetics was. Um, so defending the faith against accusations, attacks, defending uh, people themselves uh, so that they will not be persecuted. Um, and it's not an option for any of us, though. This kind of defines what it is, but also we need to see that it's a demand because Peter says, always be ready for this. Always be ready in case you can engage someone uh, as to what you believe. Um, and Pratt writes again, from the oldest to the youngest, richest to poorest, from the genius to the simple-minded, everyone who's trusted Christ is under obligation uh, to be ready to make this defense. So uh, there's no exception. It's not for the professionals. It's for every believer. 
Uh, and it's interesting, though Paul especially was appointed for the defense of the gospel, as he says in Philippians 1.16, earlier in verse 7, he says, you participated with me in the defense of the gospel. So congregations all over were already participating in the defense of the gospel uh, as they would give account for why they believe. And we'll, we'll talk about it more next week, but it's, it's basically, and most fundamentally in this passage, tell people why you have this hope. Explain to them why your life is built around this, why you've taken this to be your truth, how this has worked for you. Uh, give a reason for the hope that is in you uh, to give that account of why you have this hope. Um, it's obvious, though, that this possibly positive uh, reaction to hope or an integrity or a substance that you have being attracted by your life um, is not generated by being separate, totally separate from unbelievers. It's not in isolation that this happens. It's not by being monks that this happens. It's because we rub shoulders with unbelievers in ways that they can observe our life, in ways that we interact in business or school or whatever. Um, it's not that we're cut off from the world or disconnected from the world. It assumes interaction and participation, not in the sin of the world, but in the activities and culture of this world. Um, there's no other way that these kind of conversations would happen except that you are thrown in with unbelievers in situations that reveal the way you live. And of course, the passages on the back, the first one is Jesus saying, let your light shine before men so that they will see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. That's not, you know, and he even says that a city, it's a city on a hill. You can't cover the light. So you need to be, uh, in some ways, engaged with an unbelieving world so that they can see the integrity of your life. Uh, so that's, that in itself is a challenge, I think, for us. And it is a difficult thing because there are many warnings against being influenced by the world. So we're not to follow the lusts of the world, the sin of the world, but we're also not to separate ourselves uh, from the world in ways that we uh, don't, don't need to. Um, so, in, but a, a, as, we, we, as we talk about this uh, defense of the gospel, I want to first talk tonight about the, uh, how, how critical our character is. Now, I've already referred to it on the back here of, of, of Matthew 5. You're the salt of the earth, and then you are the light of the world. City set on a hill cannot be hidden. Um, in the same way, you allow, let light shine before others so that they may see. See, this is involvement, direct contact. They're watching you and your good works, and this causes them to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And you see, the emphasis here 
in Matthew 5 is not on uh, words, right? It's on life. But your life is convincing them. Your life is what turns them and causes them, of course, hearing the gospel itself as well. It's not as opposed to uh, uh, the word and opposed to hearing the gospel, but it's the primary agent is your, your love, your goodness, your, your uh, good, well, it calls good works, but your love and servanthood and, and goodness that is shown before others. Because he says, let them see that and they will glorify your father. And by and large, the New Testament gives the greatest emphasis to that rather than witnessing, so to speak. Now, boy, does it support witnessing and we must bear witness and that's what we're going to talk about a lot next week. But just saying that if you take it uh, in terms of frequency of what's said, What's said most often is have good behavior before this world. More than it says, speak the gospel to your neighbor. Okay? Does it oppose speaking the gospel? No. But put forward, put front, the main thing to have, we've got to have lifestyles that are winsome for the gospel. Same thing as you're familiar with... Uh, Jesus' words in John 13, 34 and 35. So he says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. And if you love one another, what does he say will happen? By this what? You can answer here tonight if you want to. Sorry? People will know that you, yeah, that you're my disciples. By not by what you tell them, not by how you call them on the carpet for what they're doing wrong, not not by writing on a blog somewhere about all the no, they'll know they'll they'll know by your love for one another. So the community that we build and the way we show our love to one another before watching world, and even that has to be exposed in some way so that they can see it. But it means inviting people into our fellowships, letting them watch what we do and how we serve one another. Uh, one, one family ended up in our church, my first church I was in, because their neighbors were members of our church and they couldn't believe when she had a baby what our church did for her. They just couldn't believe it. And they ended up being members. He's still a deacon, I think, in that, in that church. Um, but... That was a prime example of seeing the love and, and uh, realizing that these are disciples of Christ. Same thing in uh, John 17. There's verse 21, it says, and verse 23. And here he prays for unity. I pray that they may be one so that, what? Do you remember that part? People may know that you have sent me. Now, this is interesting. Kay was just watching recently uh, something on the royal family. And they were talking about King George going out early on in the, in the Blitz when uh, the Nazis, when Germany was attacking London. 
And when they first went out, nothing had happened to them in the royal palace. They were all safe and sound, and they were going around to look and see what damage it was. Well, they were booed and jeered by the people in the city because they didn't know anything about suffering. They didn't, you know, it hadn't happened to you. You hadn't lost anything. So they just felt like there was this big gap between you and us. And uh, Kay made, they made the comment that uh, they, they need to serve the people and the people, someone was quoted saying, if you can't serve the people, why do we even have a king if you can't serve us? Well, some weeks later, the, the bombs attacked their resident in particular, right? And it, it killed one of the people in, their, uh, in the palace and uh, it changed everything so that when they came out, they had suffered as well as everybody else. And what's interesting is that we have a, a king, a leader in Jesus who has suffered, right? And, and he's the one that we announce to everybody. He's the one that we lay before them. Um, and what's interesting here is that our unity proves that Jesus has been sent from God, that he is who he says he was, uh, that he is the servant, and that he's worth listening to because look at the unity and the love that these people show. So this just is embedded all throughout Scripture in the teaching of Jesus of how we love one another, how we, our unity affects the gospel in, in every way. Um, and here in Peter, it's a prominent note. You can see in your, uh, the next passage that uh, he, does, he, he treats this earlier in 1 Peter 2. After saying you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, notice when it says proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look how this unfolds. And what he says next, beloved, I, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now they were, uh, <clears throat> Christians were being accused of evil all over the place. We know that there were suspicions and rumors swirling around the early church. It was rumored that they were involved in cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper. Their greeting one another with a holy kiss was rumored to involve sexual immorality. But in the midst of this accusation, notice... When they speak evil against you, it'll be turned around as you continue to keep your conduct honorable and they will see your good deeds and glorify God. Same phrase, same basic meaning as, as Matthew 5 when Jesus uh, taught the disciples there. 
But what I want you to notice is proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light is not in the first place, at least in this, uh, this passage, announcing or speaking the gospel to people, but it is keeping your behavior excellent before them so that they can see your good deeds and glorify God. You see, you want to proclaim his excellencies. This proclaims his excellencies so that people go from uh, accusing you to saying, you know, we keep accusing them, but look how they're living, especially in the light of our attacks, especially in the light of our persecution. They continue to love us. They continue to care for us. They continue to love those around them. Um, and so it changes people's attitude, their, their very uh, life that is set before them. It's, it's like a... a, a it's like somebody running interference, you know, for the ball carrier. And the, 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 the ball carrier is the gospel, and we're running interference for the gospel and opening the way for the gospel by our life, which seems amazing that we, with all of our sins and problems, could be running interference for the gospel. But that's what's being said here. And then when you get to 1 Peter 3 itself, where we, the passage we read, you'll notice, as, as I said, that uh, it's this, this uh, statement of making a defense is surrounded by uh, all of these other uh, instructions on holy living. And verses 8 through 12 are entirely taken up with an exhortation to do good. Verses 13 and 14 speak of the suffering that may occur even while you're doing good. And then verse 16, again, uh, deals with this turnaround that may happen so that when you're slandered, those who revile you may be put to shame. They may realize, you know, we have no grounds to slander them uh, because of, of their good behavior. An interesting aspect of this passage, even though it's teaching us to give a reason for the hope that is in us, is that um, I'll get to turn my first page on. Right? The main, you know, in every sentence, now Kay will say she, she's an artist and uh, she, her favorite part of, of math was geometry because you know, pictures, right? And her favorite part of English was diagram. <laughs> diagram the sentence, right? So, you know, you have uh, subject and verb, and then you have these uh, clauses that come off, and they're hanging on the subject or they're hanging on the verb, your adverbs, your adjectives, uh, different phrases and all this. Well, here in uh, 1 Peter three fifteen. The main verb is not make a defense. In fact, ready, to, ready is just an adjective, ready to make a defense. But the main verb is sanctify Christ in your heart. So even when Paul, I mean when Peter, is telling us to be ready to make defense... That's still not the main thing he's talking about here. 
The main thing is, first and foremost, sanctify Christ in your heart. So making, being ready to give a defense hangs on whether or not we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. And making a defense without sanctifying Christ, in other words, just defending or arguing or fighting, getting red in the face and writing, and of course it really happens uh, online, uh, without any regard for Christ or uh, manifesting Christ's love, submitting to Christ's kindness and grace and humility, all of those things that will happen if you're sanctifying Christ in your heart. Because sanctifying Christ has to do with obeying him. It's really a comprehensive way of telling us to do good in all circumstances. So serve him, give yourself up to him, do his will, regard him as Lord, no matter what. So it it means to make him holy in your heart, make him uh, the controller of your heart, make him rule your heart and all that you think and, and do and say. So be ready to give a defense. Still, the most important part of that, sanctifying Christ in your heart. So his concerns are paramount, not my concerns. Not whether they've criticized me, not whether they said something that I didn't like the way they put it or whatever. But if he's Lord of my life, then I'll be willing to suffer and lose everything for his sake. That takes precedence over everything else because I've sanctified him in my heart. It means that I want to represent him. I want to speak for him and speak of him and imitate him. I want to do good as he has done good to me. That's my primary concern if I'm engaging with someone. Because Christ is sanctified in my heart. It, preve- it, it prevents us from attacking people and using people and having them as being a notch for somebody we're trying to win an argument with. And of course, it also helps us realize that if Christ is sanctified in our heart, we're, that it's Christ they're really attacking. It's not me. Don't take it personally. I'm persecuted because he's called me out of the world and I'm in fellowship with him. So uh, a major part of even this passage of giving a reason for uh, your faith and a reason for your hope is that you honor Christ as first and foremost in your life. Now, you'll notice then, and it, it, it is natural that this would happen. You can see it especially as you connect uh, sanctifying Christ with the last uh, words he says. Give a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. See, that's a direct uh, follow from sanctifying Christ. Because Christ, as he said, follow me, take my yoke upon me, upon you because I'm gentle and lowly of heart. That's what I'm like. And so if we're honoring him and, and representing him and manifesting him to others, that's the kind of attitude that we will have. Uh, now, along those lines, back up a little bit to Second uh, Peter 2, and I just want you to see a few more passages that talk about this in a 
in a pretty uh, interesting context because in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll begin with verse uh, 24. The Lord's servant is Timothy here. He's talking to him as a pastor. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents. Now, opponents here can be spouting out heresy. They could be denying Christ. They can be saying things and attacking you in ways that just really get under your skin. But even when you're dealing with those kinds of opponents, you correct them with gentleness. Then in that process, through how you even correct them and talk to them, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So it's not just what you say to someone who opposes the truth, but how you say it to them. Paul indicates that possibly God would grant them repentance leading to a change in their life. But you're to be kind to everyone, never quarrelsome, always patiently enduring the evil that flies at you and correct them with gentleness. And of course, if we are all about honoring Christ and being like Christ and living out his love, as Peter would indicate by this phrase, sanctify Christ in your heart, um, then that's the kind of attitude that we will have. Uh, Also, and I don't think this is on your sheet, so let me mention it. Uh, Colossians 4, you can jot this one down to add to these things, but Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's... uh, Colossians 4, 5, and 6. You see, again, when Paul writes to the people of God and how to interact with uh, those outside, he's not saying, be sure you speak the gospel every time when you have an opportunity. He's saying, depending on the situation, but be gracious. Uh, Let it be seasoned with salt. Let it be attractive and winsome. Right. Like salt makes food taste good. You know, taste good to people in the way you deal with them. Let them have a pleasant interaction with you and think, oh, that was a nice guy. Gosh, he was so kind and loving and gracious. Those are the kind of things that he's saying uh, that we should have in the way we act to those outside. Knowing how to answer each person. Because each person is different. You treat them as real individuals, as real human beings. Well, to throw that in with some of the verses I have for you here, uh, the Titus uh, 3 passage uh, showing perfect courtesy toward all people, again, avoiding quarreling, being gentle. Um, The elders are supposed to have this uh, to be spoken well of by outsiders. So how we 
uh, are seen by outsiders is part of who you pick to be your leader. You know, if, if they're not getting along with people out there and, and they say, you know, he's one thing in the church, but not in the workplace, then he's not, that's not who you want for your leaders. Um, but I'm going to end with this uh, phrase that's, fascinating to me from Titus 2. He's speaking, this is the next uh, third from the bottom of, of your uh, verses there. But he's speaking to servants and not the easiest situation to be living in, <clears throat> but even as a bondservant, you're to be submissive to your masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, stealing, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, a little discussion here. When I think of my life and the doctrine of God, what do you think when you compare those two things? Good comparison, like, or maybe like, here's the doctrine, right, in my life, nowhere close to conforming to it, right? But he says that our life can adorn the doctrine. That to me is one of the strangest yet most wonderful things that just you and me, normal people, struggling, failing, growing in Christ, that that life can adorn the doctrine of God. And that's what he calls us to. You all have that opportunity to adorn the doctrine of God before, you know, it could be who's checking you out at Lowe's or it could be somebody you're in out with at the post office or just everything, all interaction with people to adorn the doctrine of God. It's interesting that God could have had angels announce the gospel, right? Could have been. But he chose that here are people in this world, they're struggling in their, let's say they're in a storm and they're in their little canoes on the, uh, in little boats on the stormy waters. And he could have had an angel come in and announce to them the truth of God. But no, he's going to adorn the doctrine by having us in the midst of the storm, not always rowing quite correctly. We're struggling, we're fighting but he wants us to be the ones to side up next to them and adorn the doctrine of God in a way an angel cannot. Because they need to see the doctrine adorned by people that are living it out in this world with the struggles in their marriage and their families and their work and interacting with one another, uh, all the troubles and losses and uh, difficulties of this world. They need someone that's right there in the boat with them. That's what will adorn the doctrine of God. And that's why you are more suitable than angels <laughs> to bring this gospel out because God will use you to adorn his doctrine. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the amazing privilege that we have uh, with all of our failures and all of our struggles. And as Paul himself would say, I'm not there yet. I'm a long way away even yet. Um, Lord, that we even more know how far we have to go. And yet we in our situation are being told to adorn this doctrine. 
Thank you, Lord, that you've given us such an important place in your salvation and in how we interface with this world. Give us grace, Lord, that our lives will be a kind of defense of the gospel, kind of apologetic for why they should consider this person, Jesus Christ. Lord, may our life together in unity and love be that kind of apologetic that declares to people we indeed are disciples of this one who sacrificed himself. Indeed, he was sent by the Father. Um, and it bears its fruit in our lives as a community. Oh, bless us, Lord, according to your promise, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.